Cerebralis, this lesson is all about phytochemistry, and this isn't the easiest topic to teach or learn, but it's a topic that I have taught many times. I'm developing a bit of a project specifically, um, you know, in making this topic engaging, interesting, memorable. So hopefully at each point of this, I can capture your attention and make this um, perhaps a little bit more memorable and perhaps hopefully a little bit more cohesive than, um, you know, other maybe spotty introductions you've had, just hearing terms in your herbal courses or um, books or through looking at uh, research articles. So the kind of origin to my diving into and teaching this topic was really wanting to kind of help herbalists step up their game, but also me wanting to, um, you know, have that understanding at a meaningful level, um, not even necessarily super detailed, but have an understanding at a meaningful level. I remember a lot of terms were used, um, you know, even in my introduction to herbal medicine, and there was a bit of a context of, um, I mean, they were explained, but there was also a bit of a context of kind of understanding the theme or the meaning of some of those terms. And I was a brand new herbal medicine learner. So I did pick up on those context clues and I did keep developing that knowledge. And it's something that I continue to, you know, kind of note and develop to this day. So we're going to walk through maybe um, primarily maybe four, but also totally um, around eight or, you know, let's say around perhaps eight um, categories that we'll touch on overall. And I think those are going to more or less, without being 100% exhaustive, encapsulate most of the kind of medicinal constituents of plants. Now, there are still going to be some, you know, super advanced outliers um, and look forward to, you know, some more lessons as well as a bigger project that I'm developing. Um, but this should get you in one sitting, a, uh, hopefully a an encapsulation of many of the phytochemistry groups and of the sort of... Um, general terms for phytochemical groups that you hear. So the first one, I like to put the kind of most exciting and memorable one first, and that is alkaloids. I characterize these as the heroic, um, the mischievous in kind, the sort of um, thrills and chills of botanical medicine constituents. And these are, um, these also have a pretty definite uh, phytochemistry definition, um, or organic chemistry definition. So most alkaloids have a heterocyclic ring. What does that mean? It means that there is a um, there's a ring structure, and in place uh, in instead of or in place of at least one would typically be a carbon in that ring. You have another sort of atom, and with alkaloids, it's nitrogen. Okay, so a nitrogen containing ring is another sort of uh, brief definition for alkaloids. Now, if you have had um, biochemistry or you know biology and you know about the amino acids, then you might be thinking of some other constituents that are very ubiquitous to life that have 
many of them, nitrogen in a ring. So if something is an amino acid, you are very clever to make this connection. Um, but if it occurs, you know, kind of ubiquitous and endogenously in like a human or animal body, it's not called an alkaloid. It's really just these constituents that would be more unusual for us to, per, you know, perhaps encounter and um, that would be called alkaloids. And almost all of them are made by plants or we could extend that to um, fungi, um, algae, things of that nature. Uh, but not very many are made by animal bodies. And when they are, it's a real specific kind of defense mechanism that other animals will receive some sensation or paralyzation from, some real definite actions, okay? So what else? So we have... Um, we have a few outliers in the alkaloids to that, like things that maybe don't have a ring. Um, but keep in mind when you're moving, um, when you're manipulating sort of organic molecule structure around, sometimes there are variations that may be open instead of a ring, but it could have, you know, uh, in another formation been in a ring structure. That's a little bit nitty gritty. So that's for the organic chemistry types and not necessarily for everyone. Um, and the other thing to mention, just right off the bat, that I usually put later, but I think has significance, is that there are also neurotransmitters that have nitrogen in a ring, okay? It's a little foreshadowing there for you. So among alkaloids, um, there are many subgroups, yes, we'll mention some of them. Um, you know, some sources say there are 12, but this is really all a matter of how much you break down the groups. Like some might come up with hundreds or thousands of categories of them if you're naming them according to what plant they are named for um, or if you're getting into the real details. Okay, so that's our brief on alkaloids. And for this, this is just the intro to the, defi and the definition of some of the terms. We're going to come back and flesh out most of these further. Alkaloids very much so. So then we have polyphenols. And my little phrase is all in all, it's all phenol. So polyphenols are um, also often, you know, structures of many rings. Um if we're talking about phenol, that's definition according to phenol, that is a six-membered ring with an OH or hydroxy group. And that's a very common, um, basically, structural component of lots and lots and lots of biomolecules, lots of biomolecules. And they can be just one ring structure or they can be many, two, three, five, 15, more than can be counted. Um, but one sort of, if we called alkaloids the heroic or the sinister or the mischievous in kind and the real thrills and chills where we get immediate nervous system actions, um, we have for polyphenols, they're the kind of, I used to call them the vague, health-promoting, boring ones, uh, you know, have a vague good reputation among the health conscious it, it, of being antioxidant. Um, but there is more to it than that. Yes, they are all going to be antioxidant. Um, and yes, many, many, many of them are associated with really brilliant pigments and UV protection of plants along with that. But we also have some plant hormones and we have by um, kind of similar language of life, um, we have some 
that can just subtly influence and temporarily influence um, response, you know, uh, gene basically uh, kind of expression. Um, we also have constituents that are going to be very, very much or almost throughout the entire group of them anti-inflammatory. And that's actually by a combination of being antioxidant um, and sometimes being antioxidant enough to, um, you know, change some, temporarily change some, you know, gene expression and temporarily change some expression of certain or, ex you know, um, signaling of and communication of various inflammatory cascades. And a mechanism that is kind of both the antioxidant part and the sort of uh, second part of that, which is, you know, the perhaps the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So we see, you know, polyphenols that have multiple subtle influences. Um, and especially when using plants or ingesting plants that are very rich in many polyphenols, um, these are the sorts of botanical medicines that are often not um, pinned down to just one active constituent, right? Like hawthorn, which does better when you have a when you have the whole you know preparation of the whole fruit of the hawthorn, as opposed to um, you know some isolated constituents being stand out um, or stronger act stronger acting than the others. A lot of the constituents that end in um, or that begin with flavone, like flavanol, flavonoid, etc., um, are in this group. I mean, all of those are. And we also have coumarins, tannins, quinones, xanthones, and lignans. Um, a lot of constituents that actually cross over and occur in both the current foods. Um, occur as sort of what some might categorize as nutraceuticals, but also can... Um, you know, we can have some more specific ones that occur in the plants, which are on the edible spectrum of things, but are more often called uh, medicinal, like hawthorn again comes to mind. But you might also put in there green tea. You might controversially include soy or legumes. You might add some superfood favorites like goji berries, etc., etc. Okay, so that we have only named two groups, alkaloids and polyphenols for your notes <laughs> or for your memory. The next one, um, and all of these are going to be elaborated, at least all the, the first three to four or five groups will be elaborated on further uh, momentarily, starting momentarily. So terpenes are, um, well, they're derived from isoprene. So to some of you that may say something, but for others it may not. It's basically a particular structure of, you know, small carbon chain. And, you know, there's a little bit more to it than that. It involves some, con um, some particular arrangements of electron sharing and some unsaturation. So you see some sort of, when it's visualized, some alternating double bonds, although again, that's kind of just how it's visualized. Um, but let's talk about where are these? Where are terpenes? So they could be considered a component of some of the essential oils. If we're talking about the smaller terpenes, they are certainly in, in and associated with balms and resins. 
and a lot of topical and fragrance applications. You might be getting the gist. Um, as well as cannabis, other plants that are sticky and resinous. Um, and they have a considerable share of antimicrobial or considerable, um, you know, association with being antimicrobial, insecticidal. These aren't coincidences. The plants are, you know, benefiting from having or making these protective compounds. Um, I like to say protective instead of defensive. We don't need to always be on the defensive, right? <laughs> um, and anti-cancer natural products. Um, and some of these are, you know, some of these are a little bit venturing into the range, you know, those that are sort of insecticidal and protective a little bit in the range that they a little bit mess with or manipulate uh, sort of normal physiology or responses. I always say, you know, if alkaloids are super profound, super immediately acting nervous, well, often nervous system acting um, constituents, a few terpenes or some of the terpenes can do that too, although they generally do it um, on a shorter lived term, shorter lasting term. And most often, or they, um, if we were going to sort of diagram out poisons among alkaloids and terpenes, the terpenes generally kind of on the, well, not many reaching into the as psychoactive or not many reaching into the as, um, as dangerous or as super long lasting side, I could say, as a few of the, as uh, sort of more of the alkaloids have the potential for. Although there are a couple exceptions, you know, some terpenes that are very psychoactive, but, you know, perhaps either safer than um, kind of analogous alkaloids or, or a little bit shorter or definitely shorter lived than some kind of analogous sort of psychoactive alkaloid plants. Um, but we also see with terpenes, um, there's really kind of a range, right? So we see um, anything from just slight mood lifting or, a med you know, temporary sort of anti-inflammatory effects or temporary effects on sort of our perception of temperature even when used topically or when inhaled. Um, but we also see if we graduate, graduate up to size um, and if we, if we were to include triterpenes and steroidal saponins or steroidal triterpenes, triterpenoid saponins, these are all kind of terms to express or describe just, you know, variations of a very similar type of plant constituent. Then you're getting into some, you know, one group of plants that can have some hormonal effects as well. You're going to find adaptogens, a lot of adaptogens in the steroidal saponin or triterpene, another hint that we're still in the terpenes, um, saponin or triterpenoid group. And you're also going to find some, you know, kind of so-called sexual tonics, um, endocrine tonics, reproductive hormone tonics, etc. Although, you know, I may have the sort of breezed past it, but you're going to also see a different kind of sort of uh, hormonal tonic action among the last group, the polyphenols, if we count like lignans and isoflavonoids. There aren't exact hard rules here. Um, it's, I think, a little bit more useful to kind of learn 
the how and why of what things are doing than to try to do like a paint by numbers, this for that, or, you know, this term always means that action. Keep your mind relaxed. Remember, there's always more learning. And I like to think of this as just like learning a language. You start out with just some, you know, what you can grasp, and then you layer onto it um, deeper and broader understanding. And also, you get to learn the exceptions, and you get to learn some tricks. And there are very, very many ways of approaching, um, you know, either, you know, learning a language or learning phytochemistry. Some words in your ear among the terpene groups are monoterpenes, sesquiterpenes, triterpenes. There actually is a, you know, nomenclature for uh, the size of the, you know, group of terpenes up to an extent. And then lactones could be categorized in this group, iridoids, balsams, and resins. Uh, balsams and resins are kind of actually more like uh, mixtures of different types of constituents, but often very rich in terpenes. Um, so they're the, I'm placing those sort of vocab words for you here, and you probably already kind of intuitively or being a plant person know what a balsam and a resin is, so attach those terms with terp terpene-rich plants. We have carbohydrates, and I always say it's more it's much more interesting if we say complex polysaccharides or gums, mucilages, glycoproteins, glycosides. Um... So among medicinal plants, these can include, you know, especially for the nutrition savvy and the nutrition and digestion interested and, and immune system. And, you know, th they're going to tell us about every other type of, um, you know, downstream or associated health benefit. Um, you know, the prebiotics belong here, not probiotics, but prebiotics. The, you could put the fibers, um, the, the complex carbohydrates that we don't necessarily use as nutritional sugar. They're bigger, they're longer, they're more complex. Um, we haven't necessarily got the enzymes and mechanics to break them completely down. Um, but uh, gut flora, positive gut flora, can use those for energy and can use those as a more hospitable environment. Therefore, perhaps, um, you know, favoring uh, positive and diverse gut flora. That's just part of it, though. So let's call those um, oligosaccharides. Oligo meaning many, like many, many saccharides. You may have learned uh, monosaccharide and um, disaccharide, I think that's one of the terms. And on, you know, as the chains of sugars go up, um, you can remember oligosaccharide for those that are many. Maybe it's seven or more, or maybe it's, you know, uh, at some point it crosses into oligosaccharides. And some are, some are actually much longer than we can really even like count. And they're just like, um, their shapes are sort of approximated um, and not exactly known. They're more like a network or net of sugars. Again, they don't tend to throw off our um, like glycemic load or be in used as a nutritional sugar. So they have some little bit more. I'm focusing on the things that cross into the medicinal effects or the sort of other than nutrition or at the border of nutrition and medicine um, kind of thing. 
Um, but then we also have the immune modulating polysaccharides, including the most often term among them is beta glucans. So if you start to learn medicinal mushrooms or if you visited us uh, for Logan's webinar um, on Herb Rally, or many other versions of medicinal plant, medicinal mushroom learning, then you may have heard of beta-glucans. If you haven't, that's okay. We're going to talk about it. But they're immune modulating, and they're often in mushrooms and also fibrous parts of some medicinal plants. So if you are plants, perhaps, then medicinal mushrooms. Okay, so let's see. We're in group, that was group four, carbohydrates or the complex polysaccharides. Um, in my categorization, we have group five, glycosides. And this one, Howie Bronstein calls medicine on the side, which I like that definition a lot. Um, glycosides are characterized by being kind of an active medicinal constituent attached to a sugar. And so that other active medicinal constituent can be really a, a, a wide range of things. Um, as well as a wide range of actions. But the commonality is being attached to a sugar. So it kind of comes into the body, you might even say like sort of disguised or like I'm with this sugar, no big deal. And also it's kind of inert while it's attached to that sugar. Now our body easily knows what to do with sugar, but, um, and don't fret, this is just sort of one little sugar molecule per you know, active constituent. So you're, you're, you're getting this in your diet anyways. It's just not even a whisper of sugar. Um, but the, the glycosides, each of them are separate, you know, are metabolized or cleaved apart in a particular part of our physiology. And so that's where they're going to be active either at that body part or the next line in kind of a digestion and assimilation. Okay. So that sugar component uh, or the glycoside characteristic affects its activity where it's active. And these can be cardiac glycosides, which are real thrills and chills and extreme, um, or they can be more subtle glycosides as well. We have salicin in willow bark and poplar and... Um, Meadowsweet, um, also glycoside. Okay, so you have five, and those are the ones that I'll mostly focus on as we get into the deeper info or the examples. But um, the sixth group I have for you is lipids. It kind of completes the set in a way if we're looking, if we're kind of drawing some uh, analogous connections to nutrition. Um, so I'm not going to count all the sort of caloric lipids in this, but um, just some special ones, um, which yes, are caloric, but also have some sort of special abilities. So we could consider some fatty acids and lipids containing glycerol, such as triglycerides. Um, of course, yes, the building block of cell membranes is fuel, but we have some interesting outliers with medicinal value apart from this. Waxes are one, especially if you're into the topical in skincare stuff. Um, there are also some antifungal and poisonous lipids. I'm not going to get into those so much, but we have, um, you know, omega-3s from algae sources might count that. Um, we have 
of gamma linoleic acid in evening primrose seed and um, you know a few other kind of interesting omega-6s, omega-9s, omega-3s. And just note um, like GLA is not an omega-3. Um, we generally are you know pushed to and it would be correct to say that consuming more omega-3s is anti-inflammatory but there are some you know if you're getting an oil from a seed seed or nut, then that's usually more skewed towards omega-6s. Um, but there are some special ones that have some um, kind of anti-inflammatory and hormone balancing or hormone, um, you know, structural component contribution, sort of special value. Um, and, you know, oils in borage seed and evening primrose oil are among those. Minerals are the ones that we can, I, for this purpose, I will probably mostly skip over. I will skip over um, because in medicinal plants and nutrition, the minerals are very much kind of the same. We're talking about the same thing. Yes, you're going to have different forms, um, but, you know, mineral nutrition is studied in nutrition. Um, and so we can kind of connect and extrapolate a little bit more so there. Um, and then with enzymes, you know, there are certain enzymes, but that's a bit beyond the complexity that I can really give you, um, except for maybe a few, like really, I think, constructive information on. So we're going to focus sort of on, you know, everything from the alkaloids, polyphenols, terpenes, uh, complex polysaccharides, and maybe a couple glycosides, okay? And then maybe round it out with a mention of lipids or fats, a couple of them. Okay, alkaloids, are there a lot or are there a few? Well, not all medicinal plants have them. You might think of them as a little bit more unusual. In fact, whenever I heard about a medicinal plant, I was learning at first, oh, it has alkaloids. That was sort of a signal to really pay attention to this one. But we do know that there are tens of thousands or a hundred thousand or more alkaloids that are known. And a new alkaloid is described or discovered, described, let's say, um, every day at least. And mostly those are being investigated in, well, almost all, you know, really all uh, sort of our... A lot of the innovation comes from uh, nature. You know, na alkaloids primarily occur in plants, fungi, ferns, uh, algae, lichen, that sort of thing. So these have the super pronounced physiological effects in animals and humans. And it can vary really widely depending on the molecule. And it's not the kind of thing that someone can totally even predict by looking at the molecule. I mean, you might be able to say, oh, that looks a little bit like lobulin or um, nicotine. And so I think that that might have some profound effects or some effects with, you know, nicotinic receptors. But you can't know exactly how strong it's going to bind to receptors. You can't know um, exactly what the side effects or what the good effect, you know, what the extra, you know, side good effects are going to be um, until it's really tested out. And I say this from the perspective of 
having really been diving into this topic while um, while living with a medicinal organic chemist who studied with a very famous mentor who is teaching, who teaches all of their fellows to look at the medicinal plants for inspiration and then develop medicines that are a little bit of variation of that. Um, and so a synthetic chemist is someone who knows the ins and outs of the manipulation of individual molecular shapes and the ways to just change one little oxygen or hydrogen or a functional group. And a medicinal organic chemist is looking at how that's going to interface with the body. Um, and so this person was pretty advanced in the field. And I remember asking, like, how can we know what the actions are going to be in the body by looking or are there some themes? And um, he really has his eyes on a lot, a lot, a lot of different uh, medicinal organic compounds and a lot, a lot, a lot of different um, medicinal innovations and synthesis um, innovations and models um, working in patent law. And so um, our patent, you know, basically intellectual property, innovation and protection. So the gist is we can't, the amazing thing is we can't really know for sure how it is going to act in a human body or animal body until we test it out. So we're not even so much better off than those first, you know, those theoretical first humans tasting this plant or that in their individual community. But we do absolutely know that plants do stuff. And we know that medical innovation is very interested and very interested in alkaloids and very much founded on um, alkaloids and the, the medicines that an emergency medical person is using every single day or that a surgeon or um, anesthesiologist, ugh, not a good word for the recording, um, is using every day. Uh, a lot of those things that immediately affect physiology, secretions, heart rate, um, breathing rate, uh, you know, bleeding, neuronal or not neuronal, but like, you know, brain activity. Um, they're alkaloids, you know, they were, were and they still are. And there are a lot of them, the exact alkaloid that occurs in medicinal plants. Okay, I'm going to geek out a little bit here. The very first synthesis of alkaloids, um, for example, or the very early, among the very early synthesis, uh, syntheses of alkaloids, included tropinine, a precursor to atropine. And penic um, penicillin, of course, we know kind of discovered in a moldy petri dish, but, um, you know, also an alkaloid. But when the first chemists learned, not the first chemist ever, but the first, the first synthesis of alkaloids of plant alkaloids uh, copying the plant basically ushered in the ability to make antibiotics and ushered in the ability to make a lot of different what we would um, come to call over-the-counter drugs two things separately right but um, first antibiotics so that could be really life-changing world-changing world history outcome-changing the outcome of wars, epidemics, various moments in time uh, for humanity really kind of determined by 
presence or absence or access to antibiotics. And have you ever wondered why it's called organic chemistry? I mean, my one of my first organic chemistry teachers made the joke, like, if you're here to learn about organic bananas, this is not the right room. But um, he followed it up with that it's not a coincidence, you know, that we consider what's natural uh, and what, and what uh, you know, that there's this term that we use in agriculture and there's this term in chemistry um, that we use for some, like, basically learning, ba- you know, the baby learning of the medicines. <laughs> um, because initially these medicinal compounds, they're the first medicinal compounds of interest that chemists, that medicine was really interested in replicating were those that occurred in lichen and mosses, I don't know about mosses, but what are so-called archaic plants like lichens, ferns, um, you know, natural constituents found in soil, simple plants, um, algae, mushrooms, molds, etc. Okay, so maybe another piece of this is also why do plants have alkaloids at all? So plants have alkaloids, um, you know, if we're going to put it super simply as they're poisons, but that's not all there is to it. So we certainly think or a a leading sort of theory, and it certainly plays out as far as their, you know, actual action in interacting with other life that, um, you know, deterring herbivory, deterring, um, you know, sort of unfavorable for the plant interactions uh, is one role of alkaloids. We have a few other interactions as well, though, or roles. <coughs> so one role uh, in theory is actually an innovative nitrogen storage, similar to, they're similar in structure to amino acids, Um, It's something that the plant isn't going to use metabolically. So perhaps, you know, when nitrogen is available from the soil, the plant, you know, made certain or was, you know, advantaged by making certain um, constituents that would sort of lock up nitrogen um, in a form that wasn't going to really be, um, you know, going to be immediately used. So that's one. And we see, again, the similar structure to amino acids. I mentioned the defensive mechanism against herbivory or grazing or um, insects eating it. Um, another is uh, perhaps another theory for why plants have alkaloids is perhaps an, that these are end products of detoxifying elements in the plant's environment. So the plant, you know, manipulates a constituent uh, slightly um, or a great deal um, and the metabolite or the product is, you know, is an alkaloid. Now that's not to say that that didn't then also have some benefits for the plant, you know, some of these other benefits, especially in in way of uh, interactions with or um, protection from you know, other parts of the biotic and abiotic environment. And we have another uh, theory, theory four, which is regulatory, as a, that this is a regulatory growth factor, um, sort of like a hormone, uh, and plants do have hormones. Um, so this is, uh, this is another possible theory, and I think that 
you know, the old texts say that it's not really super well understood or, you know, sort of hypothesize about these. Um, but I think we're seeing more kind of emergence of, um, you know, kind of evidence for that function as well. And we do know that in life, you know, in any good biological system, really just about anything that occurs, just take our own hormones, for example, or our own neurotransmitters, for example, um, the functions are many. The functions are not just one. Um, and then another theory, which goes a little bit sort of with the nitrogen, uh, goes, it's a little bit kind of analogous to the nitrogen storage part. Um, you know, these occur with particular plant acids. Um, so the idea was that these were carriers for certain plant acids. In other words, kind of a way to carry or temporarily kind of move and store, um, you know, constituents that the plant is going to have some other purposes for, um, but sort of like a glycoside uh, is a sugar and an active constituent. You can maybe, you know, bind it to another constituent and keep it uh, kind of inert and inactive until, until sort of called upon or metabolized. And I said, you know, defensive mechanism against grazing. I mean, you could consider some antibiotic, antifungal, you know, that sort of thing, um, actions as well, because I know some of you are already thinking it. So you can include those in that category or, you know, that this is also a, th a theory or a, a use or function of some plant alkaloids. Not surprisingly, we see greater numbers of alkaloids um, in sort of the phylogenetic tree as we um, you know, move through time or as there were more different types of organisms for plants to plant species to interact with. And we also interestingly see a couple, just a couple animals that have alkaloids as well. Um, there are a few caterpillars that, a few types of caterpillars that ingest um, poisonous plants such as milkweed which then turn glycosides or alkaloids into their own version of, uh, you know, poison for their own protection. And weirdly, we see um, a bird, a species that has alkaloids in the tips of its feathers and in its skin, um, temporarily stinging and paralyzing um, anything that tries to eat it or touch it and catch it. Some poisonous frogs and also fire ants also use alkaloids for their sting or their venom. Um, and then we see alkaloids in bacteria and fungi. So now we're getting into kind of the medicinal plants range, sort of. Uh, we have psilocybin, uh, the entheogen constituent um, of ergot. Uh, so we have psilocybin mushrooms as one. And we have... Um, an alkaloid in the ergot of rye grain. It's a fungal sclerotium of Claviceps purpurea um, that grows in the ovary of rye grain, and this is very poisonous and hallucinogenic, not recommended. It can even cause uh, extensive necrosis, basically suffocation and dying off of tissue uh, in an immediate and a very graphic way. Um, that has occurred after accidental poisoning because it has immediately immediate effects on vasculature. Um, and therapeutically, in very controlled doses, it is still used in a, as an oxytocic 
and to prevent postpartum hemorrhage um, and has therapeutic prescription, very controlled use in treatment of migraine. But these are all by very, 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 very slight applications of a very, very strong, um, basically vasoconstrictive action. So not a health promoting action, but a definite physiological immediate action. 40% of flowering plant families have at least one known alkaloid species and alkaloids accumulate in um, at least 15 to 20% of vascular plants, especially in dicots, which are kind of usually, well, which are the majority. Um, and, you know, they can be, alkaloids can be a little bit rare in um, gymnosperms, such as ferns, pines, club mosses. Um, but there are some important medicinal alkaloids from those types of plants as well. So it might be interesting to see what botanical families have sort of the most or are characterized by having a lot of alkaloid plants. And this is a good talk for the herbalist types because these some of these words will have meaning for you. So apocyanaceae, I call that the dogbane family. And I often give people the hint that if you see bane in the name of in the common names of a plant, then that is a clue that it is either poisonous or has some poisonous relatives. Um, we have the Asteraceae family plant, so kind of surprising because you might generally think of these as more gentle. Um, you know, maybe with the exception of we know like arnica wouldn't be used and uh, would hardly be used or not be used internally. But aster the Asteraceae family has many alkaloid members. And that might be partially by having many, many different species members, many species, right? The Berberidaceae family. So this is the, um, well, a lot of the berberine plants are there. So um, we have things like, you know, Oregon grapefruit, I believe, would be in this family, and um, barberry, and, but many others as well. Um, we have, and, and there, the alkal in that family, the alkaloids are not so much poisonous. We can see, you might see some, you know, indications from research and, or indications from medicinal um you know, conventional medical use that berberine extremely isolated, totally isolated, does have some cardiac effects and uses. Um, but generally, when we're talking about plant based delivery, um, they're antibiotic, right? Um, so more kind of, you know, health promoting, but not not necessarily po not uh, categorized as being poisonous, certainly. We have the Boraginaceae family, and you are correct if you're thinking the Borage family. Um, Forget-me-nots, I do not use medicinally. Um, comfrey, however, um, and pulmonaria occur in this family or are generally categorized with this family. Fabaceae, so that's a lot of different. So Fabaceae is the pea and bean family. So we have the range in this family from common foods to um, a few thrills and chills, sort of alkaloid-containing plants as well. So not all Fabaceae are... Um, edible and not poisonous. We have some medicinal and poisonous members too. The Papaveraceae family. So this is particularly rich source. Um, you know, this is the, the poppy family and these are particularly associated with alkaloids. Um, those still less than the Apocynaceae family, dogbane family. 
Uh, we have the Ranunculus family, um, and we have Rubiaceae, uh, Coffee, Matter, Bedstraw family, and all, actually uh, the caffeine and other sort of caffeine-like constituents or the, you know, stimulant constituents often categorized with caffeine plants like theophylline and theobromine. Um, those are actually technically alkaloids. They're a very specific kind of alkaloid called a methylxanthine, um, which, you know, is a little bit different than most of the other alkaloids. It's, uh, they're water-soluble for one, um, you know, and they occur in a very small range of caffeine plants, you know, maybe six to a dozen species worldwide. And we have actually maybe up to 20. I could be wrong about that, but it's more than most people think. Um, caffeine, you know, species of caffeine plants. Um, you know, and we see, we see also in the Solanaceae family, which is the, um, you know, the peppers, eggplants, potato, but also our deadly nightshade, also our Atropa belladonna. We see a lot of some serious thrills and chills, nightshade, or alkaloid plants there, also nightshade plants. Okay, but there's more. But wait, there's more. Um, so we see there are, um, among the alkaloids, more poisonous plant compounds than any other group, um, but also more acute remedies. And we see a lot of the first aid plants are here. Um Conine and strychnine are a couple examples, um, and Lobeline and atropine would also be examples. So what's really so special about alkaloids? I like to think of this particular nitrogen position as being a sort of, you know, biologically somewhat scarce type of molecule. Um, and also nitrogen, we know, really only comes into the um, atmosphere or the biosphere as lightning. And then, you know, other than that, it is recycled by plants by nitrogen fixing plants um, which is a process where N2 in the atmosphere is converted to NH3. Um, N2 is going to be relatively inert or not active with most other life um, and or not in a good way and so we need to or useful way um, and so we need nitrogen fixing plants to do that sort of conversion. Um, and also we see uh, this sort of connection with amino acids and neurotransmitters. And so something that I learned very early on in biochemistry is on the first day is that, um, you know, there's this sort of trick question after you're supposed to do your first set of your reading. And it was, you know, is a good biomolecule or an ideal biomolecule going to be um, reactive or not? more reactive or not less reactive? And the question was really, 
in the middle or both because you don't want something that's completely inert. You need it to talk to and communicate with and interact with and do reactions with other biomolecules. But you also don't need something that is so reactive that it is detrimental to other life or, you know, too bossy or creating these really reactive cascades. So you want it to be able to kind of come into the body and be able to, um, you know, speak a common language and exert certain effects um, in a kind of a specialized way. And alkaloids certainly do that. So I think by being kind of like our amino acids and some of, some of our amino acids and some of our neurotransmitters that are then formed from those few amino acids with this nitrogen in a ring structure, um, but being not exactly that same molecule, you have something that the body can speak to or hear from. Um, but because the body isn't seeing it every day um, or may just see it like a few times in life or rarely, you have um, something that is going to make the, the body sit up and pay attention um, as well as something that is going to be able to do some binding perhaps with some similar sites to what some of the neurotransmitters bind. Um, and so I think that's what makes alkaloids so special. Among the kind of household or herbal household name alkaloids, we have morphine, quinine, lobeline from lobelia, um, caffeine, nicotine, and atropine, just a few. But if you were to look into just lists of alkaloids and you're even, let's say you're even in a pretty conven uh, completely conventional source, you're going to see tens or you could see tens of different alkaloids listed that are used in conventional medicine where most of them are actually the exact same constituent as, a, as occurs in a plant um, or a fungi. So I think that's pretty remarkable. I will get into some additional, you know, plants you know with alkaloids, but what about alkaloids is most important to know. Don't worry, we spend the most time on alkaloids purposely and then kind of go faster <laughs> through the rest um, or briefer. So um, physical properties of alkaloids, um, most of them are going to be more soluble in alcohol, but not very soluble in water. There are some notable exceptions. The caffeine plants, um, as as uh, well, are the caffeine, uh, the methylxanthines, um, the constituents associated with the caffeine plants, um, theophylline, theobromine, caffeine, also ephedrine as a methylxanthine. And you're also going to see um, berberine as being uh, soluble in water as well in addition to be, being soluble in alcohol. So we covered solubility a little bit. How about activities? We're going to see um, a lot of uh, potential analgesia for some alkaloids. Now, not all alkaloids are going to have all of these actions, but here are a few terms, uh, terms in your ear to associate with some alkaloids. Um, cardiac stimulation, or sometimes sedation. Um, respiratory stimulation or relaxation. Vasoconstriction muscle relaxation, um, including, you know, vascular muscles as well. So vasoconstriction or vasorelaxation, um, toxicity. Alkaloids can be anti-neoplastic, which is a specific type of anti-cancer action. And we have many others we could include, but that's to give you an idea of the, the gist or the sort of magnitude of immediate actions. 
Oftentimes we think that these or we know that these are having effects on neuroreceptors. Um, and it's not exactly that they're like, well, it's not, it's not necessarily that they are the neurotransmitter, right? But they can have interactions with neurotransmitters. Sometimes that occupies a site so that it exerts a similar effect to that neurotransmitter, or it might amplify um, or reduce the effect of that neurotransmitter and might allow that neurotransmitter to be active at that site longer. Um, there are various, you know, specific mechanisms, but we see a lot of it, a lot of the actions of alkaloids revolve around neuroreceptors, though that's not exclusive. So sometimes they're called cholinergic or adrenergic or opiate or serotonergic. Okay, so a couple terms to know. Um, and not all serotonergics are going to be equal in magnitude or effects or even in what specific serotonin receptors they are binding. Um, and keep that in your mind for all those other categories too. We have lots of different opioid receptors and types of cannabinoid receptors. And so when you see that something is interacting with cannabinoid receptors or it's um, an opioid you know, receptor, uh, you know, action is, is sort of part of its mechanism of action it, that doesn't necessarily equate to the plants most known for interactions with those receptors. So the magnitude may be very, very different and the effects may be very, very different. Um, we see inhibition and activation of various enzymes that can be associated with signal transduction as well. Um, but again, you know, lots of poisonous plants, lots of immediately active medications, um, acute remedies, first aid plants, drug plants, psychoactive plants, and nerving plants among the alkaloids. Cocoa has many, caffeine, theobromine, uh, theophylline, I know I've repeated it a few times, um, Lobelia inflata, which is a plant that is a medium to more advanced um, use herb has uh, at least 14 alkaloids. One of them is named lobeline and has a lot of interactions with the nicotinic receptor, which for one is why there's a lot of research interest and some use in um, smoking or tobacco addiction cessation. And there's also, um, also this sort of classic use of lobelia being an adjuvant or a small additive uh, to many different botanical medicine formulas, at least in North America, where um, for a time Lobelia was often added to kind of wake the nervous system up to kind of the remedy or to be, you know, it would be put in a formula as a little bit of a nervous system tonic and to make the body kind of more responsive for a time. Plants and constituents that work on the nicotinic receptor often have this um, somewhat medicinal feeling or desired effect of it first being stimulant and then sedative. So keep that in mind with lobelia and with some alkaloids. Um, we have Passiflora incarnata, which is passion flower and um, has many alkaloids, but three that were known early on or named early on were harmaline, harmon, and harmine. I call these the harmine singers, <laughs> but they were used, um, they were attempted as an early, um, attempt at an, at a Parkinson's medication. Not really totally effective, but the sort of direction for that was both their nervous system, effects and their anti-spasmodic effects. That was the rationale there. 
Um, and these alkaloids are still known in medicine and have really long, long, long history of use to present in the, you know, form of different tonics and extracts, um, simple extracts of passion flower. We have golden seal, which I've mentioned a few times, but um, has the alkaloids berberine and hydrastine, which happen to be really quite antibiotic. And we have the Madagascar periwinkle, which is kind of the mama of the um, alkaloid plants, at least if you're coming from conventional drug innovation or conventional medicine, because it has, I think, over a hundred different alkaloids that are known and many of them applied in conventional cancer care, um, commonly to present and going many decades back and have some other applications in addition to cancer care. Madagascar periwinkle is not the sort of plant or alkaloids that sort of play nice. I would consider this a poisonous plant that one is only going to use if they have learned some very, very, very specific preparations of it. And that's not generally something that is even circulated among Western herbalism. Um, you would have to be really, uh, you know, learning from a, a true traditional user who has had the prepar preparation techniques passed down many generations. Um, mostly, I'd say... You know, worldwide, the biggest use of Madagascar periwinkle is in, you know, conventional drug use. Although I have learned that there are some, so I've learned that there are some African uses and some other traditional uses for Madagascar periwinkle, but these are really, um, like I said, specific preparation, not necessarily kind of general health promoting tonics. So um, I still stand with you would have to really have specifically learned that. Okay, so a few others, maybe in the range that we do use in Western herbalism. Um, so you might not be using the opiate poppy, but you might use California poppy, um, Escheschultzia, and the, a lot of the action of California poppy is based on alkaloids, although they are not um, habit-forming or opiate alkaloids. We have Withania somnifera, uh, one of the actual adaptogens, I say actual because not all adaptogens are going to have alkaloids, but this one does have some tropane type alkaloids. Um, and, you know, we do think of withania somnifera as being one of the slightly more kind of neurologic of the neuroendocrine support plants. And we do know that withania doesn't, you know, necessarily agree with every person. Um, and it's a little bit on the sleepier side of things as well. So while yes, I believe it's an endocrine tonic, it may have a little bit of alkaloid property to thank for that as well. Um, did you know that ar Arnica has some non-toxic pyrolizidine alkaloids? So if you've heard of PAs, PAs, often, um, you know, if you're leading a plant walk or just talking about a plant, someone will bossily want to tell you, um, you know, Comfrey, for example, has PAs, pyrolizidine alkaloids. Well, um, there are also PAs that are non-toxic, and it depends on the saturation, uh, basically, of hydrogens or not about a certain ring in the structure. Um, but basically, you you know, there are some non-toxic and some toxic pyrolizidine alkaloids, and al Arnica does have pyrolizidine alkaloids, although they are not of the poisonous type. 
Now, for other reasons, you wouldn't use Arnica generally internally, however. And I mentioned that uh, the Berberidaceae family has a lot of alkaloid, has a good number, a good portion of alkaloid containing plants, but sometimes they aren't necessarily the ones that are, um, you know, poisonous. So Berberis vulgaris, just a common barberry that I have harvested and used for medicine. I've harvested the root and the stems and both have a very vibrant yellow color and make a very vibrant berberine rich yellow extract um it said that the root bark the part you're in most interested in if you happen to use the roots um are up to 13 percent alkaloids so that's pretty impressive and remarkable because usually if you see that something is even one percent alkaloid uh, or some are six but if you see even one that's usually pretty impressive and pretty active like some of our very psychoactive plants are between one to six percent alkaloids six is really quite a lot i think that might be peyote which is oh well which is six percent mescaline but still anytime you see in the even single digits of percents um alkaloids that's going to be something to pay attention to we do by we do have some alkaloids in what are almost called you know sort of benevolent foods or uh you know vegetables so um when we do have those they're usually going to be betalane alkaloids named for beets and they are associated betalane alkaloids are associated with dark pigments so betalane alkaloids are in our friends beets and Swiss chard, which I consider the same, real, really the same species. Uh, ru- rhubarb, again, kind of, you know, similar. Um, amaranth, purslane, or lamb's quarters, and also prickly pear cactus. Some of those really vibrant fuchsias um, in beets or prickly pear. And um, an exception from the so-called benevolent sources was, would be also, what, can, what else can you think of that's fuchsia in the medicinal plant world? But this one verges on poisonous, um, has, some, has some uses, but is known to be poisonous too. Pokeweed. So um, in pokeberry, we also know that it's the seed that's the real poisonous part of the fruit, but we do know that all parts of the plant have poison. It's only the super, super young plant prepared in a particular way that can be eaten. Um, But anyhow, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing these bright, vibrant fuchsia plants that are on the food and medicine spectrum um, with betalane alkaloids. These may or may not be for, well, they probably are for protection against UV damage and to also, also to deter herbivory. Um, Inadvertently, I did a little experiment in a garden, a city garden that had a lot of bunnies and other animals, critters coming to it, and we planted rainbow beets, um, you know, variety of many colors, and what we found is that the red beets were left when the pale beets were eaten by bunnies and things, so that was kind of interesting, maybe a point to those betalane alkaloids. And we see also some, um, you know, potentially, let's say just health protective, potentially anti-cancer type of actions here as well with betalane alkaloids. 
And there are a number of um, a number of red alkaloids in beets. And one source that I kind of like to look to is um, a book and a page called Compound Interest. And it's all about organic chemistry and uh, sort of the how and why explained, uh, you know, explained with you know, chemical molecule um, illustrations, but also, you know, describing the kind of, hmm, have you ever wondered if um, sort of chemistry questions to kind of common everyday life sorts of things. There's a page um, on nettles as well. And that's not, we're not necessarily including that in the alkaloid plants. It's just fun to look at the nettles page as well. So what's more about betalane alkaloids, we see they're very antioxidant and we see some potential to enhance apoptosis, um, leading to interest in anti-cancer actions. On the far opposite end of the spectrum, we have morphine or opiate alkaloids, um, strong pain suppressors, potentially, definitely potentially habit forming, potentially lethal by the side effect of respiratory suppression and cyanosis. Um, that means suffocation, you've turned blue due to respiratory suppression. Um, but also, you know, we has long-term use as a cough, first as a cough reflux inhibitor, reflex inhibitor, I mean to say, a tussilage. Um, and it's, you know, morphine itself is unique pr practically to one species, papaver somnifera. Although we have other, you know, we have other opiate alkaloids that occur also in papaver somnifera. Morphine is just the most well-known. And they can be kind of wicked, although there are some less wicked alkaloids uh, in papaver somnifera than morphine. We have diterpenoid alkaloids. This is again in the poisonous range. Um, some of the alkaloids of monkshood, which is deadly, deadly poisonous. It's also called um, aconite. And I have harvested it. And I have also been in small groups that harvested some under supervision. And um, some people did not feel very well after just handling the plant. Okay. Um, in fact, I didn't either. Um, and belladonna and delphinium are a few other poisonous plants with low dose medicinal history. And some very, 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 very specific, very, very, very low dose uses to present, as well as some adopt adaptation into conventional medicine with selected constituents and very precise delivery, including um, atropine from Atropa belladonna, which has been adopted into ophthalmology, um, not just to test your eyes, but to also test your your brain function or nervous system function or pathologies potentially. And it's actually used far more widely than just ophthalmology, but that's how the, the lay person might know it after an eye exam. As I said, all super poisonous, but the crude drug plus constituents and derivatives have been used in rheumatism and sciatica among other uses. But this isn't really the place to start for those things, okay? Um, and those generally, you know, also, topical use is going to be a much different thing than internal use, but still could cause harm, illness, etc. That is, even topical use could. There's really relation here with the tropane alkaloids. In fact, we get a lot of overlap. Um, and 
you know, in, in the, what plants have these two types or even how the two types, you know, even how a specific constituent might be named. Um, so with tropane alkaloids, I think about entheogen plants, uh, including, you know, scopolamine, atropine, and cocaine as the constituents. I think about the plants Datura, Belladonna, Henbane, European Mandrake, and the coca plant, not cocoa, but coca. Um, and these plants, you know, m off many of them have, or all of them really have plants that have, or compounds that have kind of opposing actions t from each other, or the effect can be dose dependent or can change over time. So you can't really categorize the effects, um, so simply. Um, but at least the most typical representatives of this group in medicine and medicinal botany are stimulants, cardiac stimulants, bronchodilators, vasoconstrictors, just for example. And with tropine, with tropane alkaloids, um, you see the, it's, these are thought to be join, uh, formed from joining two amino acids, at least one of those arginine. And you see a lot of kind of, um, interesting double ring structures, but where the rings are each, well, where one of the rings, let's just say it's not your typical side to side six membered ring structure, but there are two of the carbons and a nitrogen shared uh, between the two rings. It's a bit of a, it's, you know, illustrated a little bit more uniquely and with a little bit more uh, potential dimensionality than other ring structures you may know. It's a, it's a tropian alkaloid is a particular kind of unique structure. And these can be very strong at blocking mus uh, muscarinic receptor, at blocking the muscarinic receptors, suppressing parasympathetic nervous system activities where affected. Um, so the result is an increase in the sympathetic or fight or flight response, at least initially. You see increased heart rate and blood pressure, increased intraocular pressure, um, which can be one of the one of the therapeutic applications. Um, you see pupils dilate. Um, a therapeutic, you know, short-term potential benefit of opening the airway, antispasmodic effects, um, especially for the GI tract and airway, and it's used topically as a you know they're used topically as pain reducers as well. And yes, most tropane alkaloids are coming from solanaceous plants or poisonous solanaceous plants. Um, and many or some are hallucinogenic. Coca is also a tropane alkaloid plant in the family Erthroxylaceae. Um, and uh, some other botanical families with tropane alkaloids include the Convolvulaceae or the Morning Glory family. Even the Brassicaceae family has a few, Dioscoraceae family has a few, um, Orchidaceae as well, and a few others. Um, you might know scopolamine as a common drug for motion sickness. So these do have some, you know, kind of like anesthetic and uh, particular pointed nervous system sort of sedative type effects. Um, but can be serious poison in plant form or in or in isolated constituent form. Here's a fun one: imizidol uh, alkaloids. These are um, 
these are really a lot about secretions and have sialagogue effects. So pilocarpine for jaborandi is one. Um, interestingly, this is in the rutaceae family or citrus family, which I think most of us generally associate with foods. But here's one of the thrills and chills kind of medicinal and poisonous plants. Um, this plant pilocarpine, or this, sorry, this plant jaborandi with the constituent pilocarpine activates cholinergic receptors of the mis muscarinic type. And again, the effect is secretions, 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 and GI contractions. So there are some ophthalmolic applications, um, both pre and post treatment and diagnostic uh, uses as well. Um, and, you know, conventional uses could be include perhaps like after surgery to bring secretions and GI contractions back. Um, and, you know, traditional uses could include bringing back functionality to the GI tract after, you know, a period of hunger or of illness. Indole alkaloids, there are many weird and dramatic psychoactive and poisonous compounds among at least among the, you know, kind of four or more subgroups in this class. This is where the ergot alkaloids live, um, a constituent of Nux vomica or poison nut, and also raw wolfia or reserpine is there. Um, that's a hypotensive tranquilizer, and raw wolfia herb is um, used as a tincture for blood pressure, but it's really one to be aware of because I find that, well, I have actually seen people become very, very depressed on it. Um, and so in the particular clinic I worked in, we more or less discontinued its use. It's not a beginner herb. And, um, vinblastin, an anti-neoplastic an anti of vinca of the Madagascar periwinkle is in the indole alkaloids as well. These are characterized by a six-membered ring attached to a five-membered ring, the nitrogen being... Um, one carbon away from the six-membered ring and the five-membered ring, and they, again, just have some dramatic effects, and they are very unique from each other and from the other alkaloids, too. Next up, let's do a group where you might recognize some more commonalities. So this is the isoquinolone alkaloid group, and it's a really, well, actually, yeah, it's a really large group of alkaloids. Actually, the indole alkaloid group we did last has um, a lot of really important notable members um, and subgroups, but this is a this is a very isoquinolone alkaloids are a very large group of alkaloids, and these are based on um, two six-membered rings um, fused or bound together, um, and we have quinolone or uh, quinoline, depending on how you say and depending on the ver uh, specific functional groups there. Um, as sort of the backbone or the base here. And these are all derivatives of the amino acids phenylalanine and tyrosine, any of the isoquinolone alkaloids. And here we see um, a lot of the poppy family notable constituents, and we see some of the um, berberine plant constituents as well. We see a uh, not all of them, but many of them highly pigmented, like reds, oranges, yellows, but real bright yellows. Um, and we also see for many, but not necessarily all, um, 
the alkaloids or the sort of medicinal part is going to be a stem or latex or seed that kind of has a, a bit of a latexy or sappy kind of quality to it. So we definitely see that with morphine of the opium poppy. We see that um, also with papaverine, uh, an antispasmodic in that poppy. But we can also kind of recognize that quality in um, sanguinarine or in bloodroot um, and the constituent sanguinarine, which occurs in the, you know, brilliant orange sort of reddish blood red orange um, root or rhizome of blood root. And we see that in hydra um, in golden seal and in berberis and we have hydrastine and berberine, um, which occur as isoquinolone alkaloids and in the isoquinolone alkaloids we have yes the really dramatic morphine um, and we have you know other really dramatic constituents but we also have some that are going to be more antibacterial anti-inflammatory mildly hemostatic and you know and you know, used topically or, or used internally without really, you know, dramatic dangerous effects, but yes, definite medicinal effects among, you know, blood root and although that's a low dose botanical still, but especially in hydrastine and berberine. These are plants that when I first learned them, I probably wouldn't have characterized so much as alkaloid plants. It may happen that someday someone bossy who knows a, a, a lot about a little um, <laughs> might point out that berberine has some cardio actions. That is true, but that is very, very, it's basically um, isolated or very, very concentrated berberine. Not You're not going to really achieve this from plant type preparation. So I just like to put that out there. But berberine really has a wide range of actions um, from the antimicrobial and um, kind of mucosal membrane tonic and anti-infective and sort of infection clearing properties. It's also said to be uh, inhibit enterotoxins, toxins that some pathogens make that can, you know, help us continue to stay sick. you know, after an infection is being resolved. It also is known to increase secretions, which is interesting to see since we think of it as a mucosal membrane tonic and increasing secretions is often a protective um, kind of action if you can achieve that. This is an action that is more uh, confirmed or observed with use for uh, re-wetting the eyes, actually, lacrimal secretions. So berberine just in itself has really a wide range. I haven't even named all of them because I find it can get a little dilute if we name all the actions, but it has many. And then hydrastine. So we see berberine and hydrastine often, you know, we're thinking of these for like golden seal and uh, berberis, things that we don't definitely are not thinking of as like psychoactive or nervous system active, but they are alkaloid plants. Um, hydrastine is antibacterial. That's not a surprise to most, um, but also vasoconstrictive slightly. Um, so a nod to its topical use over wounds, perhaps acting a little bit styptic, perhaps helping, um, you know, superficial or surface healing a bit as well. 
I want to next go to a group that we can actually kind of smell and taste and characterize, which are, which you, again, you, you know, this is another group you may not have thought about as alkaloids, and they can be classified in other ways too, but piperine and piperidine alkaloids, um, again, these can be classified in other ways, but these are the, you know, some of the pungent constituents of black pepper um, that also help to, you know, do some mild nervous system stimulation and have a little bit of a pungent, irritating or counter irritant effect on contact or in certain applications when ingested too. And these have effects on pain receptors and at higher concentrations um, can, you know, deplete the, that local neurotransmitter we call substance P, helping to relieve pain temporarily. These have an acrid flavor and, you know, you would have likely guessed from piperine that it's a constituent of black pepper, but we also have um, piperidine in, uh, we have lobeline, which is a piperidine, a similar type of constituent in lobelia that gives it some of that acrid taste and sensation and a little bit of that um, kind of expectorant definite and sort of ref reflex uh, sort of stimulant action. And again, these are, you know, these are not of the sort of psychoactive, certainly not piperine, um, but these are of the sort of, you know, medium strength kind of use things. So examples of some other alkaloids that are not going to, you know, send you to the stratosphere, so to speak. <laughs> I mentioned lobelia, which is a segue, you know, n n these plants are not going to ha make just one type of alkaloid, most of them. So lobelia also makes pyridine alkaloids. And of the pyridine alkaloids, um, we famously have nicotine um, as a representative there. And we know that nicotine has a range of stimulant and relaxant actions, or perhaps you might say first stimulant and then relaxant, um, or even dose-dependent stimulant and relaxant actions. And we also know the areca nut, um, which where it grows is, much, is used much like nicotine, um, it is very astringent and it is rich in pyridine and piperidine alkaloids that give sort of a light euphoria or is used uh, recreationally and for sort of um, relaxation, happiness, joy, etc. It's a bright red seed or nut with little streaks, well, with um, stripes of yellow as well one of the mild euphorians that will stain your mouth red for a time. And there are really very many other types. I feel I've probably pressed it on how long I can hold your attention. So let's move into polyphenols. So polyphenols are our second group, and we'll go through these next ones a little bit more succinctly. These are simple phenols are associated with flavors of foods. Polyphenols are often, so that's a few of them together, often responsible for a pigment. And, um, you know, some of these are also glycosides, so could fit into that glycoside group as well. But we'll talk about phenols for now. And they are many, many, many of the flavonoids or flavanols, polyphenols, however you like to call them. Those, those words do have subtle differences in meaning, but are a little bit interchangeable in sort of lay or herbal use. Um... 
These typically have anti-inflammatory effects, whether small or big molecules. Quercetin is an example. Um, they can be anti-hepatotoxic. An example is psilocybin. They can be fight when you get into a little bit more complexity and specificity and specific look or relation to, um, you know, the molecule cholesterol and estrogen. We have the phytoestrogens in this group. Genistin, diazin, isoflavonoids in general. Um, and when you also, we also can see that some isoflavonoids are insecticidal or uh, pesticidal, that is, you know, uh, poisonous against fish. Um, and we may see, you know, some of these structures that are a little bit hormonal like as having adaptations to keep things from eating it, some adaptations to keep from being fully digested in the GI tract, like that's a theory about soy and a reason that um, one likes, um, you know, soy to be, or one might favor having soy fermented from a digestive standpoint and overall health standpoint. Um, but we see, you know, moreover, let's not get lost on that, a lot of antioxidant and free radical scavenging touted activities and a lot of kind of subtle, um, generally positive, almost always positive um, effects on kind of gene expression, reduction of inflammation or helping in resolving inflammation, that sort of that sort of action. The colorful foods and medicines uh, and plant medicines are, you know, are often characterized here. I mean, we know all plants are colorful, but we see some of the distinctive pigments of fruits um, and some of the unique pigments of plants, uh, you know, belonging to the flavonoids and phenolics. And it's no coincidence because these are, we think, adaptations um, or uh, protection against UV damage, um, and then perhaps with a side note or side benefit of, um, you know, training animals and other things to either eat or not eat its fruit and seed. So we have famously salicin uh, in this group. You could call it a glycoside too, but it's also a polyphenol or phenol, I should say. Phenol, it's a small constituent, one sugar and one sort of... Um, variation of a phenol. It's really a kind of a ring structure with a methyl group on it attached to a sugar. We have arbutin from um, arbutin from uva ursi, for example, and gallic acid, a tannin, a simple tannin in many, many, many plants. These are the simplest of the phenols. And vanillin uh, is considered a phenol as well. I mentioned a lot of this really distinct fruits uh, or flavors of fruits and some spices are phenols. Um, we have here astringency among the tannins. We have antibacterial potential among practically all of them, although it's kind of lighter often uh, than maybe the alkaloids might be. Um, and, and we have antiviral actions, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, definite, definite. Um, sometimes um, anti anaphylactic. So you're going to see some kind of down regulation of hyper responses among the phenols and polyphenols. And we could count some choleretics here too. So things that, you know, natural plant constituents that maybe aren't in every food or every diet all the time, but 
they may help to sort of remind or stimulate or encourage, um, you know, healthy breakdown of cholesterol, um, healthy, you know, metabolism uh, and remanufacturing of cholesterol as well. So promoting healthy lipid profiles, um, promoting good uh, gallbladder and bile function as well. Um, and we can have other actions too. I mentioned antiphylactic and, you know, with that comes potential bronchodilating, bronchial dilating. These aren't to think of like super dramatic effects, but more countering hyper responses that could have come about from inflammation or certain, um, you know, genetic uh, expressions or predisposition to, you know, both irritation and reaction to things. Phenols and polyphenols can take that down a little bit temporarily, um, and in you know in a healthy diet can reduce those hyperreactions uh, somewhat long term too. If we step into just one more specificity of types of polyphenols or phenols, we have the phenylpropanoids and cinnamic acids. And as you may be thinking, these do have a lot to do with some of the spices or kind of aromatic and pungent herbs. So we have curcumin in turmeric. We have cumeric acid in spices, honey, peanut, beans, vegetables, honey, wine, garlic, and vinegar, which is both antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, um, possibly even inhibits, uh, you know, some of the factors that could lead to stomach cancer. Let's just say it's anti-inflammatory. It's an it's um you know, tempera tempering or reducing uh, hyper responses. Um, and we have beta acerone too in the, I consider very aromatic plant, Acorus calamus, which I consider an aromatic plant, but also a stomach soother. And this group occurs in plants, we think uh, as a UV protectant, but also maybe having some more specific, specific and advanced functions in um, detoxifying some of the inputs from soil, other plants, water, constituents just made during metabolism, etc. And on that note, a type of phenol that probably more people have heard of is, um, or a phenol is resveratrol. So resveratrol belongs to a group called the stilbenoids, and stil stilbenoids are less common than flavonoids or phenolics, but these are also antioxidant um, in a human or animal, uh, perhaps LDL lowering, and perhaps slightly reducing, slightly reducing platelet aggregation. Um, not anything that in appreciable amounts in food is going to, um, you know, cause uh, spontaneous hemorrhaging or something of that nature, but you know, basically keeping keeping the blood vos viscosity in tone and not too clotted or thick. And there are many many other types of polyphenols that have an influence here as well. Um, when we move into flavonoids, um, it's just it's kind of just describing a little bit bigger uh, flavanol, generally like a fifteen carbon s you know, skeleton, which is kind of a three ring structure. It's said to be like a um, two phenyl rings and a heterocyclic ring, for example. Um, so we have ginkettin, a flavonoid of ginkgo. We have um, many that are associated with antioxidant effects, particularly for the nervous system or cardiovascular system, or that's where they're more researched. 
Um, we see that a lot of these are water soluble. We see that some are lipophilic and we see that there are sort of widespread health protective effects. Maybe not so much that they're dramatic medicines, but they're just essential to our own health maintenance. I know I repeat a little, but hopefully that kind of helps you remember and take some of this down if you are. Some actions of flavonoids include antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-hepatotoxic, um, immune modulating. That's a new one, but a new one for this sitting. Um, hypoglycemic, hypotensive, regulating cardiac function. Some of them are very weakly estrogenic. Um, weakly, you know, let's say more modulating. Um, and then we can get into some, oh, and cholagogue, and then we can get into some a little bit more medicinal actions like antimicrobial, antispasmodic, and diuretic for some. Examples of that kind of more medicinal, um, we have some hepatoprotective actions from, we think, flavonoids or polyphenols or lignans in milk thistle. We have some potentially antispasmodic effects from, let's say, raspberry leaf. Um, just to name a couple, and then you see a lot of plants that you might consider like just pretty safe and um, uh, the medium, you know, medicinal spectrum that are said to be antimicrobial um, or have a, a you know slight antimicrobial value. Like I might suggest uh, goldenrod in, in this category. If you're newer to this topic, my homework for you is quercetin. It is a yellow bioflavonoid in almost all plants, or probably all plants, um, or at least the ones we kind of recognize. Um, bone set garlic, cayenne, onion peel is where I kind of originally learned about it from, and it's um, some supplements of quercetin are made from onion peel, cabbage, evening primrose leaf, apple, cranberry, citrus, uh, practically really all fruits, all greens, so it goes on and on. But this is um, has been promoted as a natural anti-inflammatory. It's going to be very safe. And I have found it very helpful with seasonal allergies, especially with, uh, you know, with other bioflavonoids. So you could use it as food. You could use it as a supplement. But quercetin is an interesting, um, safe, ubiquitous plant bioflavonoid to know. And when it's sort of mostly isolated, it's yellow, um, kind of goldenrod yellow, and, and goldenrod has it as well. Um, we think it affects many enzyme systems, and uh, including uh, hyaluronidase, which can sort of help to respond to certain irritations, as, uh, as in, in allergies. Um, but really it goes, you know, it's, it's a, it's a known antioxidant. I mean, so many plant constituents are, but you find some research there as well. And if we want to think specifically about allergies, although it's not limited to allergies, um, histidine decarboxylase is an enzyme system that it affects as well. Um, and if you're hearing histidine and thinking of histamine and thinking of allergies, um, well, this enzyme system does have other actions, but you've got it right for that one. It is, you know, it is related. I know I've mentioned the term tannins, but tannins, which are just about the simplest type of um, polyphenol, or sorry, simplest type of phenol there is, are um, also, you know, in this group, and they're going to be astringent, cause kind of slight temporary constriction of tissue, usually mucosal membranes, and also the skin and can help that be a more protective barrier. 
Um, also, tannins are said to be antimicrobial, although whether this is really countering the microbes or just helping to keep them out, I think it may be um, more of sort of a protective physical action, or it could be a little bit of both. But these are useful for protecting inflamed membranes, drying excess secretions, reducing, um, you know, reducing bleeding if it is slight, um, and also internally reducing water loss from diarrhea. So don't forget the tannins, and they are, depending on the size of tannin, a phenol or polyphenol. Um, there are small tannins in big. All of them are astringent. Some have additional actions as well. But why are tannins astringent? We spent so much time on alkaloids, so I'll pause a little bit here. Tannins cause astringency by complexes they form with proteins in a tissue. They have a lot of different, they have a lot of OH groups all kind of situated around a ring, you know, ring structures that almost look like a net. And um, oxygen and hyd hydrogen functional group, the hydroxy group, associates well with other biomolecules and makes small little interactions and exchanges really well with other biomolecules. And so these have a strong ability to form hydrogen bonds with a variety of biomolecules, which happens to include our tissues um, or the molecules, you know, that make up our tissues. And so effectively tannins will temporarily sort of shrink up or cinch up the protein tissue a little bit by bringing the parts a little closer, making the gaps a little smaller, making it slightly firmer and less, more importantly, less permeable. Um, this can also be protective against microbial enzymes, um, you know, which is just a, yet another kind of uh, barrier sort of action. Um, although the, the con there, the only sort of safety concern is astringents might slightly, slightly uh, reduce absorption in the GI tract. But this is no different than your cups of tea or coffee or green tea that you have, so not to, not to really fret. Isoflavonoids or isoflavones um, occur in this group of polyphenols, and they have a specific kind of structure that um, is especially abundant in the pea and bean family or Fabaceae family, and they're said to be weakly estrogenic. So count your red clover here as well as your soy. Um, and really all beans that you eat, too. Um, you know, spoiler alert for some who have not learned that. Um, and I tend to think of this as an overall positive, although with some estrogen um, responsive or estrogen sensitive cancers, one would want to, you know, seek an individualized um, plan. It is complicated, but there are people who can guide you uh, guide you with that. We have saponins. These are a specific group that has the backbone of cholesterol plus a little bit additional, you know, structure, a little bit additional functional groups. And these are aliphatic. They have an affinity for both water and lipids. And in a medicinal compound and herbalism, they can have effects on hormones. Wild yam, dioscorea is an example. And that is by its similarity to cholesterol and to certain hormones that are based on that cholesterol molecule. Um, it can also include some of the plants that we consider the strongest adaptogens like ginseng and licorice and many other pea family adaptogenic um, herbs. Licorice is, you know, Fabaceae family as well. 
Um, but also saponins can have a slight irritant effect on the GI tract or other mucosal membranes. Um, and this is not that it's toxic, but in just its aliphatic nature where it has an affinity for lipids and water both, it also can really get in tight with the and interact with our um, phospholipid layers and our membranes. So it can have some slight irritant effects, although sometimes that is used for advantage to increase activity, motion, absorption on those membranes. You might hear the term phytosterols as a sort of variation on this. Um, sterols, sterols were originally or a while, uh, some time ago believed to be specific to animals, but we have phytosterols as well in some of the higher plants. Um, Google sterones um, from Google or Comophora, a resinous, I would characterize as Indian plant that lowers, um, it can slightly influence lowering blood cholesterol and triglycerides and, and perhaps stimulate thyroid function as well. Okay, so now we've gotten through two big, big categories, the ones I wanted to spend the most time on. Now we'll get to our third category of importance, which is the terpenes. So this includes, I know I introduced all the groups early on, um, but this is time for terpenes. So terpenes includes gums, resins, essential oils, saponins, although we've kind of alluded to saponins um, in the last section too, because there's some crossover of, um, you know, what kind of characteristics the different molecules have. Um, and we could include carotenoids and lycopene, um, cholesterol, and some other steroid-like biomolecules. So already you're seeing a little bit of crossover between what you might call a terpene or what some might call, you know, what some might categorize with the bioflavonoids. Um, so we have first in, um, first to mention here is that this, these are defined by having an isoprene unit, which is a particular sequence uh, our particular chain of carbons um, and shares electrons in a particular way that gives it a little bit of stability but also a little bit of flexibility for um, you know biomolecule interactions so we have um, first in the set is the monoterpenes which are really really small and these float through the air really easily and they make um, aromatic constituents that we sense and taste immediately. Um, the mint family, the pine family, the citrus, uh, parsley, um, and really anything very aromatic as well will have, uh, will be rich in or will have a good um, top note, you might say, in monoterpenes that can immediately be sensed and can many of them immediately subtly affect our nervous system as well. And many of these constituents um, are antibiotic as well. And as you move up in groups, you also have, um, you know, you can follow these through like monoterpene, sesquiterpene, mono having one sesquiterpene having three isoprene units it's sort of a one and a half of something a diterpenoid having four isoprene units and so on but we'll step through um, kind of some additional categories with meaning so one is the iridoids and these are terpenes that are most associated with the bitter principle so a lot of plants have bitter constituents but this is just one uh, one reason why some of the medicinal plants um, that you might not count as edible, have the very bitter sensation. Things like gentian 
and verbena or eyebright or bog bean can be counted in this and also valerian which you might not consider bitter but it has some really unique aromatic um, sensations uh, and qualities these all include iridoids so some of the iridoids have been documented to be detectable at a dilution up to 1 to 50,000 and they are known to stimulate gastric secretions or sec release of gastrin specifically um, and other GI secretions and, and bile. And so these can be very helpful for digestion and we can use them in very small amounts as well. And they sometimes occur in plants that are not very abundant or that have very, very specific habitat habitats. So you might consider going another route to get your bitters, but you might also consider that these plants may have, you know, these species may have survived by making bitter constituents um, because they, you know, maybe didn't have a very robust um, habit of spreading or a very quick reproductive cycle or their habitat. I would say this third part is more true for the ones I'm thinking of. Their habitat is very specific and limited like bog bean, like some of the gentians, and like eyebright, which don't grow very abundantly and have real specific um, habitat requirements. But anyhow, we see um, a specific type of terpenes, the um, iridoids associated with the bitter principle, can, be, um, can activate digestive secretions at a very extreme dilution. We have sesquiterpenes, which is kind of like one or one and a half steps up from the monoterpenes. And these have to do with a lot of the allelopathic interactions between plants or between plants and fungal pheromones or fungi, you know, hyphae or my, um, mycorrhiza. Um, these are also associated with perhaps being some of the simpler of the phytoalexins, which signal... Uh, infection or infestation uh, to help neighbors or to help the rest of the plant have a good sort of, you know, start some of the protective um, functions. And we have, um, you might also call, you might also hear the term alimones in plant fungal interactions. Some of these are sesquiterpenes. So some of the more famous ones in sort of aromatherapy and herbalism are camazuline in chamomile, but also in um, yarrow uh, and in wormwood. And these are in, you know, a human person, anti-inflammatory and antipyretic. We have humulene in humulus lupulus hops, a constituent of uh, really, you know, many other plants and essential oils too. Um, but we know this is going to be super bitter and super digestive stimulating and also, you know, anti-inflammatory. And then we have zingiberine, uh, which has a, a nice carminative effect. You might think of sesquiterpene lactones, or you might not think of it, but this is another variation. It's a sesquiterpene, a small sesquiterpene with a lactone group. I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be small, but it's just, um, well, a sesquiterpene. So yes, it is a smallish one. Um, with a lactone group, and these can be antibacterial, antifungal, um, anti-helminth, which is anti-worm, anti-hyperlipidemic, so um, slightly modulating uh, blood lipids or blood lipids or cholesterol, um, and some of these are you know associated with 
being cardiovascular tonic or being in plants that are cardiovascular tonic. Um, sometimes through dramatic effects, um, digitalis-like effects, um, but also through some more subtle anti-inflammatory effects too. And some plant families that include sesquiterpene lactones are the Asteraceae family, the Apiaceae family, um, and others. And some of these plants have 15 or more sesquiterpene lactones in one species. Artemisia annua is one. Um, and that's one that's really notably medicinal and um, it's an anti-malarial plant, you know, studied and used to present. And some of these are said to also have anti-neoplastic effects. This is um, an anti-cancer effect or tumor in potentially tumor inhibiting effect. Um, so we see, you know, anti-neoplastic, we see some immune stimulating actions, and we see some antibiotic actions, actions among the sesquiterpene lactones. And Asteraceae and Apiaceae family plants are really abundant in these. I know I've really kind of accelerated as we got to our third group of, uh, which will be our last of the main groups. Um, but as you keep going up in size or length of that sort of terpene chain, you get into things that are more recognizable in, um, you get things that are more recognizable from a nutritional standpoint, carotenoids and lycopene, for example. So these are lipid soluble pigments. These can be considered a little more in the sort of nutritionally studied realm, um, but also are some of them associated with reducing mutagenesis, so sort of an anti-cancer action. Um, some have, you know, some are studied in with respect to cardiovascular disease. Um, and here we're talking terpenes with 40 carbons or more, so something quite big. And as I mentioned, lipid soluble, that's because it has this really long carbon chain. And so it is like a lipid. It is a bit more like a lipid. You're going to see your some of your lipid soluble vitamins in this area as well. Now, I want to step back and say that we could have kind of counted the um, like steroidal saponins, triterpene saponins could have equally gone in this group with the terpenes. And we kind of covered them, I kind of covered them in the, um, you know, extensions of flavonoids group. I would kind of more often cover them in the terpene, terpenes and terpenoids group, but it really, you know, depends on what source you're looking at. They have qualities of both. So I'm going to move on to the sort of more sensory um, terpene-like, uh, some of the other sensory-like terpene-like constituent or um, themes. So we have plant exudates, which are going exudates, sorry, which are going to be, um, you know, mixtures of various constituents, but largely we have a lot of terpenes there. Um, you could call these balsam, balsams, gums, oleoresins, resins, etc. Um, so these are, uh, you know, often exudated from the tree. They're the sap um, from a tree or other plant, but we get a lot from woody plants. Um, and here we have a lot, you know, mostly insoluble in water. They're kind of uh, part of their function is being protectant, physical protectants, and is part of their qualities are to last a long time. So you wouldn't want them to be uh, water soluble. Some are a little bit alcohol soluble. Some are oil soluble. 
Um, but here we have a lot of antimicrobial and antiseptic actions, you know, for the plant itself. You have some antifungal actions as well as anti-inflammatory. Think of healing, thinking of keeping infections out. Um, and these, by their sort of semi-solid characteristic as well as antiseptic, can be really nice for topical use as well. Um, but, you know, plant resins or exudate mixtures, gums, balsams, oleoresins um, may, you know, be mixtures of lignans, resins, um, you know, tannins, and a number of other constituents as well. Some plants really known for this are boswellia, boswellia serrata, sometimes called frankincense, um, camphor, uh, cinnamomum camphor, we have myrrh, camophora momo. Uh, we have dragon's blood as well. Um, we have yerba santa, if we want to think of kind of one of the, you know, west uh, and a more kind of herbaceous, um, woody, but also herbaceous plant. Um, and, or a plant where, you know, the leaves can be used, I guess is what I'm meaning to say here. Grindelia for another kind of smaller and, you know, potentially Western plant. Um, and Damiana as well are all kind of resin rich, resin strong plants. We have polysaccharides. We are rounding the bend towards completion here. I remember I said we would only really talk about the really complex ones, the oligosaccharides, the prebiotic fibers. Um, and so these can, um, these usually occur in sort of woody parts of plants, whether that is the root or the um, inner bark or, um, you know, usually those two areas, um, although medicinal mushrooms are really rich in polysaccharides, their fruiting bodies are, and that especially in the shelf, um, we think of these for the shelf fungi or polypores. So these are indigestible um, constituents, indigestible to us, that can selectively stimulate growth or activity of certain bacteria in the um, in the colon or in the lower bowel, and so they're called prebiotic instead of probiotic. They're the food for the the you know microflora that we want. And if we're looking to herbs, we have inulin in onions, leeks, garlic, bananas, Jerusalem artichoke, and inula helenium. If we're looking to herbs, we also have burdock, chicory root, globe artichoke root, um, echinacea, though we don't necessarily think of it as a food, and, you know, some of these we don't think of as a food, um, dandelion root, and so on. We can think of all of the kind of dense-bodied medicinal mushrooms, um, and we can think of specifically uh, agaricus, maitake, shiitake, chaga, reishi, and so on. And so we have uh, inulin is one that's really a, a, polysac a complex polysaccharide that's um, abundant or that we kind of associate with some of the aster family plants as well as some of the allium family plants. Um, and beta-glucans are uh, very much associated with a lot of the hard-bodied medicinal mushrooms. They can be immune-modulating, again, um, 
by supporting healthy gut flora, but there's there's something else with this beta-glucans. Beta-glucans we know also, and this is a group of like hundreds or thousands of variations of a particular structure. So there are many, many different kinds of beta-glucans named by how the sugars, the polysaccharides, the two sugars um, attach to each other or more how each sugar attaches to each other in this in these small groups or sometimes really large and because they form networks um but beta glucans if they go into the gut in appreciable amounts interact with something called the pears patches and the pears patches are little bits of um lymph like or immune tissue tucked under the microvilli in the lower um gi tract and if there's enough kind of contact or activation there with immune modulating polysaccharides, those pear patches, pears patches can send signals to the rest of the, you know, to other aspects of the immune system. And the effects tend to be kind of paying attention a little bit more for bacteria and viral issues, um, but down-regulating potential autoimmune issues. So, or down-regulating cytokines that might, um, you know, cause or or create autoimmune issues, but um, making just a little bit more active or effective, you know, cytokine and cytokine, you know, the downstream responses of those cytokines that will help the immune system be more responsive to actual infective um, organisms. We also see beta-glucans can potentially be cholesterol-lowering, and that's really studied in things like um, oat bran, which is another source of beta-glucans, and potential slight immune and blood sugar balancing effects as well. Um, So, you know, think of these not as nutritional sugar, but kind of medicinal um, influence and medicinal influence. And they can also be categorized as sort of you know, down-regulating some hypersensitivities, but still keeping imu- the immune uh, functions both intact and in shape. While we're paused on things that are kind of sugars, but kind of not, we'll just briefly touch on cardiac glycosides, but not very much more than how I introduced it. Um, these are called, you know, one, one herbal teacher, Howie Bronstein, calls these medicine on the side, and that's because it's an active constituent attached to a sugar a nutritional sugar. And so they come into the body kind of undetected, but then what is cleaved from the sugar can be very, very medicinally active. And so one of the main types of cardiac glycosides you may read about are cardiac glycosides, but you typically won't use those intentionally as an herbalist. Cardiac glycosides kind of manipulate the Um, electrical exchange and energy exchange of the heart muscle so that you collectively get um, longer time between contractions but a stronger contraction so it can slow a racing heart but the downside is um, it's really these are pretty much obsolete from use as herbal medicines they're mostly um, used in very controlled amounts in conventional care and emergency medicine um, so, you know, cardiac glycosides are something to kind of beware of and to kind of avoid as a learner, um, or even as an advanced herbalist, but you will see, you will see glycosides, uh, or that term used for things that are not cardiac glycosides, like, um, 
salicin in, in willow bark is not a cardiac glycoside, but it's a glycoside in that it's active kind of anti-inflammatory portion of its constituent comes into the body attached to a nutritional sugar. And that does actually have some relevance to its sort of um, usefulness and that it comes into the stomach a little bit buffered. Um, and then is, you know, the two, the inert or not the inert, but the sugar part and the medicinal or active part are then, you know, metabolized apart or cleaved apart. So you get something that's um, already a little bit buffered for the stomach, a little bit gentler for the stomach than if you had only the active constituent. And I think I have just one more, which I have the least to say about, which is sort of the lipids or fats or fatty acids. So um, just of note, um, there is a, an algae source of DHA and EPA to omega-3 fatty acids that we typically haven't been able to get in appreciable amounts from plant sources because mostly plants put their fats into the seed and mostly those fats are omega-6s, which are diets most of us are already very replete in. Um, so schizotrium is a microalgae that is rich in DHA and EPA, um, those are the so-called good ones, the omega-3s traditionally sourced from fish or krill. But we also have some uh, omega-6s that are thought to be medicinal, healthful, etc. worth supplementing in the form of like GLA, um, you know, from some seed oils like borage seed oil or evening primrose seed oil. You know, and there are other ways we could go with that, but I'm going to leave it at that for the main gist of this. I'll just review what the major phytochemical classes were and sort of my take on it. Alkaloids, the heroic, and the thrills and chills. That's where some of the immediate actions are often through the nervous system, but not exclusively. We have entheogens. We have some um, immediately cardioactive constituents there. We have some strong antibiotic types of actions there as well. Poisons. Uh, some of the top poisons are alkaloids but you don't need to fear every single alkaloid plant. We have polyphenols in contrast. Those are kind of the benevolent, um, innocent ones, generally health promoting, generally modulating, associated with a lot of colorful foods, health promoting, vegetarian, you know, health promoting, um, you know, high antioxidant, high nutrient value edible plants, as well as crossing into some of the medium strength medicinal plants. We have terpenes, which can either be uh, gentle and aromatic, or they can be uh, a little bit more, you know, psychoactive too. some of them. Um, but we can characterize these on the smaller ones, mostly being aromatic. The middles, uh, the, the next step up being very bitter tasting and stimulating secretions and sort of having some positive effects potentially on lipid profile and some digestive, general digestive and elimination stimulating effects. And then we reach into the um, like triterpenoids, saponins, which I actually described during polyphenols. It can be categorized either way. Just keeping that, that in mind when you hear triterpenoids, that is a terpene um, as well. And then we get into the biggest of all terp or the the you know biggest most often recognized terpenes being some of our 
fat-soluble vitamins, uh, beta-carotene, things of that nature. We also know gums and resins in plants that have sticky saps. That's a terpene, uh, a largely terpene-based product. And those have a lot of good antiseptic and anti-infective, antibacterial, antiviral, and anti-inflammatory effects for the plant and for us too. We have carbohydrates, which are more interesting if we say complex polysaccharides, and we focused on inulin in um, roots of some Asteraceae family plants, and we focused on beta-glucans in almost all, and really in all the edible mushrooms. And then we talked briefly about glycosides, medicine on the side. You're not going to play around with cardiac glycosides, and we also have some glycosides that are not cardioactive per se. We mentioned a couple key interesting uh, lipids um, or fatty acids to be more accurate. Um, Some that are made in a microalgae that produce omega-3, which is unusual. In plant fats, we usually have more omega-6s in the way of the seed. And we talked about GLA in um, some specific plant sources, which is really an omega-6, but it's one we're still interested in. And you might think of borage seed oil or evening primrose seed oil. And those are generally, you know, considered anti-inflammatory by balancing um, fatty acids away from a kind of arachidonic acid pathway. I didn't even say that, uh, but that's part of it. And also sometimes have some hormonal modulating effects. The parts I don't cover in this, but I'll mention so you feel a little bit more complete are minerals, which many plants or all plants have, but um, minerals in medicinal herbs are going to be somewhat interchangeable in your thinking with those, you know, with minerals as you learn it in nutrition. That's not to say the forms are going to be exactly the same or the absorption is going to be exactly the same or delivery, but there's, it's a little bit less perhaps new to people if you've had a little nutrition or if you're thinking about your dietary minerals. And then we have enzymes, which I'm not even going to try to touch because enzyme can mean many, many different things. Although you may think of like papain from papaya as a digestive enzyme, for example. Um, So there, I guess we included one enzyme as well. Or bromelain in pineapple and many fruits as well, at least among the bromeliads, let's say, and some tropical fruits. Okay, well, that's it, Herbalist. You've all been very patient and attentive. I hope you're a multitasking. I usually do when I listen and learn. And I believe I'll have some other specific phytochemistry talks because I actually have a really big, big project in this area that I am um, plugging away at when I'm not doing other medicinal plants work. Okay, thanks, Herbalists.